And our scripture passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Hear the word of the Lord. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your word that breathes life into this world, your word that sustains all things, your word which is alive and cuts to the very core of who we are. I pray that by the, by the power of your spirit, you would inspire us, encourage us, challenge us, convict us as we need by your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you know, when I was uh, a buddy, 19-year-old, I had the privilege of uh, working uh, at a UPS store that was newly opened up in Bothell, Washington. I was living on my own for the, my first time, paying bills, and uh, you know, I was working for the esteemed promotion of the store of assistant manager. Now, there was only two people that worked at the store, so you know, I had a pretty good odds of, of getting it, um, and yet I didn't get it. Uh, one of my coworkers beat me out for it, and all of a sudden, this person that was like my equal was now my boss, and it was weird because she would tell me what to do, and I actually had to do it. And uh, I didn't like that, and I didn't really like her, and so it was a challenge, and, um, because I thought I should be in charge. And so because of this, I, uh, as a 19-year-old, I thought, I know what to do. I'm going to subvert her at every turn. I'm going to make her life miserable. And, uh, and so what I would do is if a customer was in the store and, and asked to talk to like a manager or something, and she wasn't up front or she was out of the store, I would just say, oh, yeah, it's me. What do you need? And... Uh, <laughs> And so I, I had it to where a subset of our regular customers actually thought I was the manager of the, the, the store, and, uh, which is great until, you know, that kind of thing can only last so long. You know, I can't be in the store all the time. And at some point, she realized what was happening, and the owners found out what was happening because they were in there a lot. And I was confronted and kind of put into my place, and it was a, a painful lesson. Um, uh, so that, that kind of situation, right, is the kind of situation that, the, that these elders and scribes, these leaders uh, of, the, of the Jewish people think they're in. Right? They think they're the ones that have this authority, and Jesus is the one that's coming and subverting it, although he has no right to. Uh, for, for them, Jesus is this rabbi who's speaking and acting out of step. Jesus is acting like he owns the place when he, he doesn't. He's actually below them. And so when Jesus is acting the way he is, it doesn't sit well with, with the leaders of, of the day because uh, Jesus is acting like he owns a place. And in a, in a twist, what they f end up finding 
is that they actually are the imposter authorities, not Jesus. And this is the kind of tension that creates this whole scene before us. Remember, this would have been on uh, probably a Tuesday of, of Holy Week. And so things are getting tense and building up to what will be his, his crucifixion. Um, and it just creates this, this, these scenes start to happen more and more. These, these confrontations with the leaders happen more and more. And so these leaders come to Jesus and, and they challenge him. And there's this clash of authorities before us. And the question is, who's really in charge here? And of course, this isn't just a problem for them in this time. This is, this is a problem for us too. We struggle uh, with wanting to be in charge, right? And in some ways, this is the big question. Who's in, who's in charge? Of, of course, you know, us in this room would probably almost all say, of course, God's in charge. Jesus is king. Hallelujah. But do we live like that, right? Uh, oftentimes, we live like we are the ultimate authorities in our lives and we subvert his rule because we actually don't always like it. It, uh, it doesn't always sit well. Uh, we like being in control and deciding what is right and what is wrong. And, you know, this is something that's not new for us. We've inherited this from our parents and Adam and Eve and the lie that says that you know better than God, right? The, the lie that says our flourishing doesn't come through submission to anyone but yourself, I mean, this is the lie that's worked itself out in our culture, right? A radical individualism that says you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. No one can tell you what to do. But this idea hasn't led to flourishing at all, has it? Right? In the church, this is the kind of thing that I think has led to non-denominational churches where nobody submits to anyone. In the Western world, it's led to chaos where we don't know the difference between boys and girls, where everyone gets to choose their own adventure no matter how perverse or wild it is. When we submit to ourselves, it leads to utter chaos. And what's before us this morning is the beautiful truth that in God's kingdom, freedom comes through submission. Flourishing comes through submission to the one true and good king, Jesus. We were not meant to be in charge. Jesus doesn't bid us come to us because he's some power-hungry jerk either, but because it's actually out of love. Because he knows that the only way that you can actually flourish in life is through submission to him. Because he is the only one that can lead you to this. And so as we consider this, this theme of authority and power this morning, uh, there's, there's three aspects to the authority of Christ that we're going to discover. The first is this, the confrontation of Jesus' authority. The confrontation of Jesus' authority. And what we're going to find is the authority of Jesus isn't, isn't passive. It, it will actually always confront any authority that, that challenges it. And this is actually what you see here right at the beginning here in verse 27. It says this, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And so this, this group that's coming to him, the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, would have made up uh, the supreme authority in the day for the Jews called the Sanhedrin. And so maybe you've heard of the Sanhedrin before, but that's what this is describing. That's who's coming up to Jesus. Uh, it's a collection of chief priests, scribes, and elders that would have made up for us. The, the closest example would be something like a Supreme Court, right? The highest authority in the land for the Jews. And they govern the people. They said, this is right and this is wrong. Um, and this highest authority is what's coming to confront Jesus, imposing him with a question in verse 28. It says this, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? Right, they're asking, 
And whose name do you come? Who gave you the authority to do the things that, that you're doing? And, and just remember, Jesus just made a giant scene in the temple, right? Turning over tables and, uh, and making a scene. He also made a scene when he came into the city, right? He's called Hosanna, right? He's called the king, the Messiah. So he's, all these things are happening. They're saying, what gives you the right to do these things, to act like this? In other words, they're saying, listen, we are the final word. We're the ones that give authority out. We didn't say you could act like this. We didn't give you authority. So who did? Which is basically saying no one, because we're the only ones that have authority to give this kind of authority. Also remember, this is, this is Passover week. So this is the week that, that the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin's power would have been on full display. The Jewish people are coming back into Jerusalem from, from all over uh, to, to be to the, at the temple to worship and celebrate Passover. This is their high week. Uh, this is when people are supposed to be coming to the Sanhedrin to talk to them and ask them and, and you know, it's for them to kind of exercise their power and authority over the people. And yet all anyone can talk about is Jesus. Jesus is making all this commotion uh, and this threatens them and the authority in the land. This is why they fear him, even though they loathe him. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Who are you to act like this? And so in this, they come and they confront Jesus. And they confront the authority that he's claiming, saying he has no authority. I think for us at this point, it's easy for us to separate ourselves from these religious leaders. But when the gospel tells us stories and it puts characters in the stories, we're to at least some degree supposed to read ourselves into the story um, but, but we're not supposed to be the hero. We're not the heroes of the story, right? We, uh, we're the offenders in the story. The Sanhedrin is, is us. In very real ways, we are the arrogant authorities who resist the authority of Jesus. Of course, we say we love it. We say we follow him, except when he comes and disrupts our lives, right? Except when his law challenges the way we live, you know, for the Sanhedrin, their, their lives revolved around their perceived authority over the Jewish people, right? They were so tied to this that they were willing to kill Jesus rather than give it up. There's nothing that would cause them to give up their power. For us, our lives, I think, tend to revolve around a perceived autonomy, right? We agree with God's rule in our lives until we don't, and then we ignore those parts of the Bible we're not sure about, and we arbitrarily listen to some things and not other things and this is, when we do this, though, we act as lawgivers, right? We're, we act like we're God. You know, the interesting thing is if I went out in the streets and I asked people, you know, what do you, what do you think about Jesus? You know, most people would say, oh, I love Jesus. He's a good guy. Uh, he's, he's a really cool dude. And, and then you say, well, uh, what about what he said about hell? Or well, you start reading what Jesus said about judgment, what, what Jesus said about marriage and divorce, about homosexuality. And then, then you know, people are like, well, no. Uh, we just want that one thing he said about love. We really like that thing. Can we just stick with that? You know, it's like they want Jesus, but only the one they fashion in their own minds. And we're not much different, right? Uh, we want Jesus, but we want the one that's in our own mind, the, the one that makes life easy for us. And the Sanhedrin loves God's law until they're confronted with it, right? We love the things of God until they challenge how we live, until we have to give up something we love, the Sanhedrin, it's their authority. They didn't want to give it up. The question is, what is it for you? What's that thing that you don't want to give up? Where do the commands of Christ challenge and cause you to say, what gives you the right to touch this part of my life, Jesus? You have no right. You know, the annoying thing about Jesus is that uh, because Jesus has actual authority, he doesn't need to ask you for permission to have it, does he? It's just his 
He just acts. He didn't ask for the permission to enter the city as the savior of the world. He didn't ask for permission to come to the temple and disrupt worship. He, hasn't, he wasn't worried about hurting their feelings because he already has real authority. It's not borrowed. And any attempt to claim place of supreme authority is an affront to him because he is the source of all authority. He has an authority that's not given to him by man. And so whenever we challenge his authority, it creates a confrontation. It creates a showdown. And as the Sanhedrin confronts Jesus trying to expose him as a fraud, what we see is that they end up being the ones exposed. When there's a confrontation of power between us and Jesus, we are the ones that are exposed. And this is the, the second aspect that we find with the authority of Jesus, is that the authority of Jesus exposes us. The authority of Jesus exposes us. We see this beginning here in verse 29. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So Jesus responds to their question with a question, very Jesus-like. You know, but this is actually a common debate tactic during the day that when philosophers were debating, they would often answer questions with questions as a way to kind of draw out their, their opponent. And so he asked a question, and seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus asked them a question about John the Baptist. Well, we haven't heard from John the Baptist for a long time, and it seems kind of out of place and odd. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, what Jesus is saying is, is this. He's saying, is the ministry of John the Baptist from heaven or from God? Uh, or is it from man, which means John the Baptist as a prophet was a fraud and not a prophet at all? And why is Jesus asking this? Well, because if John the Baptist was a real prophet, then the things he testified about Jesus publicly must be true. John the Baptist will authenticate my authority. Uh, in, 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 in the baptism of Jesus, then there's the inauguration of his ministry and affirming all the things he's said and done. So what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? Well, at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, one of the first things that happens is, is, uh, is Mark quotes from Malachi 3 that, that John is coming into the world to prepare the way of, for the Lord to come. He's preparing the way for Yahweh to come. And then a little while later, in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 7, he says that, John, said, John the Baptist says that someone is coming who is mightier than I am, whose strap I am not worthy to untie, someone who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. In other words, John the Baptist is saying, listen, the one who I am preparing the way for, the one who's coming after me is the long-awaited Messiah, the one who's come to rescue his people. John the Baptist testified that Jesus is the long-awaited one, the healer of worlds. John the Baptist is the one who gave public testimony to authenticate Jesus. So Jesus is saying to the challengers, listen, either... Either what John the Baptist said was true of me, and he is from heaven, which means I am God, or, uh, or what John the Baptist said was wrong. He's just a man, and, and, and everything he said was, was, was wrong. Which is it? Was he a real prophet or not? Tell me, almighty Sanhedrin, is John the Baptist right? Because if so, you have no right to challenge my authority. The temple actually belongs to me. The temple is my house. Or is John the Baptist wrong? Am I just a man? And in verse 31 to 32, we, we see their response. Uh, and, they, and they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid, for they all held that John, for the, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So as Jesus is exposing their true nature uh, and, and their true challenge, uh, he's creating this dilemma for them. 
right? Either they admit that he is who he said he is and authenticated by a prophet of God, or they say that John the Baptist was a bum and the crowd attacks him. Uh, they're exposed in this moment, right? John the Baptist was a public minister. Like he was ministering publicly. Everyone knew what he had said and what he had done. They had every reason to believe him. Jesus's ministry was public, right? People knew about the miracles and could, everything was out in the open. They, they had every reason to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Uh, if they were truly seeking after God, they would have recognized this and they would have gratefully bowed to him. They would have conceded any power they had because they knew that their power is not their own. Uh, because they would have known that the Jesus coming means like the restoration of all things is at hand. The king has come. And yet the mighty Sanhedrin instead is afraid. Who are they afraid of? Of the crowd, of the people. They're not, they're not afraid of God. They're not afraid of his son, but they're actually afraid of the crowd. They're afraid of men in this. They're, they're exposed that they don't love God at all. All they love is their power, and they'll do anything it takes to hold on to it, even if it means killing the very Messiah that they say they're waiting for. And so they answer in verse 33. Uh, they, they answer, we don't know. Well, that's, that's a lie, right? They, they know exactly what they think. They don't, they don't believe that John the Baptist was from God. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And here they're, they're exposed. And their faith is in themselves, not in Yahweh. They're imposters. They're abusers of power. They took God's law and they used it to exercise power over others instead of serving others. They positioned themselves as gods. And Jesus responds in a, in a bit of a haunting fashion here. Right? Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Right? Because their question to him wasn't sincere. They were looking for a reason to expose him as a fraud, and, and they end up being the ones exposed. They, they act like they were speaking on behalf of God when really they're speaking on behalf of the serpent. Right? Instead of being serpent crushers, they're serpent feeders. And this exposure isn't just for them, but this actually exposes us too. Every time we try to play God, this is what we're doing. And when we are confronted with the supreme authority of God, we're exposed. Our idols are exposed. Our vain worship of ourselves is exposed. Our, our vain attempts to try to be supreme authority in our lives is exposed. And, and this is actually a good thing. Because you can't experience the healing power of Christ until you're exposed uh, in your inability to save yourself. Although it's a painful process, it's a holy process. Because when you run from God, it never ends well. Power and control are those evil things that they feel good for a moment when you have it. Just like it did for Adam and Eve. It's a moment of power, the moment of doing ever, whatever you want. But it always ends in your destruction. It ends in death for us because we're not meant to be supreme authority. So Jesus, out of love, exposes us so that he can heal us. So what do, we, we, what do we do with this exposure? Well, this is the third aspect uh, you see here, and it's the solution of Christ's authority. The solution of, Christ, of Christ's authority. You know, at the, at the very end of this text, it doesn't end us with a ton of hope. It's kind of a cliffhanger, which actually is going to get resolved more next week when we look at the parable of the tenants, um, which is kind of directly after this and related to it. But for this section, uh, it, it kind of ends abruptly. But it does that because it's meant to draw you out a little bit. You, you too are supposed to answer the question, who is in charge? Is John the Baptist from God or is he from man? 
And in this, it's a warning. Do not answer like the Sanhedrin. Right? Don't fear man more than you fear God. Uh, when you do, it actually ends in judgment. Here, it ends in judgment. This is what he's saying by not answering them. He's judging them. They're being judged for their love of self. And the question turns for us, is Jesus who he said he was? Is, is he the, who John the Baptist proclaimed that he was? If yes, then what does it mean for you that he is king? What does it mean that you are not your own? You know, there's probably many things we can say about this, but in the context here, I think there's, there's three aspects to how the authority of Christ kind of is the solution for us. And uh, the first thing, you know, we're called to do when, we con- when, we're, when we're confronted with, with the authority of Christ and we're exposed is uh, to recognize Jesus as king. First thing we're called to do is just recognize that he is king to, to, because to recognize that Jesus is the king is to simultaneously say, well, that means I'm not the king. That means I can't do whatever I want. Uh, and this is, this is the place where you can find the solution to the problem of authority. And uh, Jesus is the, the one true king who is good. Notice in this, I didn't say make Jesus king of your lives, which is only a lot of times people summarize, you know, what coming to faith is, or I made Jesus king of your life. That's actually not what happens. Jesus actually is the king of everybody's lives, uh, without question. He is the king. He didn't ask for permission. He is the king over all things. What coming to Jesus means is it means you're recognizing this thing that's already true. He is king. He doesn't need your permission to be in charge, and we're called to, to recognize that. And after you recognize it, the next step is we're called to repent of our vain attempts of being our own gods. Right, this is the pattern that Jesus establishes actually at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? Repent for bowing to false kings and false idols. Come into this kingdom. And the beautiful thing is there's pardon for your sin. Jesus is a gracious king who pardons your sins. All your many rebellions come to him and receive his grace. And as we do that, the third thing we're called to do is then to submit to this kingdom. Right, so we, we recognize that Jesus is the rightful king. We, we repent for, for our vain attempts to try to be in charge. And then we live as his subjects in his kingdom. Or to put a finer point on it, as Paul says in Romans six eighteen, he says, having been set free from sin, we've become slaves to righteousness. Which is to say that if he's our king, that means we are not our own. If he is your king, it means that you are not your own. You can't do whatever you want. The Heidelberg Catechism says it like this, right? What is your only comfort in life and in death? It says that I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our king. We are his subjects. We belong to him, body and soul. There's not a part of us that doesn't belong to him. And even, even this language, though, it can be hard to read we can resist because it's hard for us to sometimes trust that this is actually good. Right? Belonging to somebody else sounds bad for us. It sounds restrictive. And maybe a big reason we're timid to fully submit is because maybe you read parts of Scripture and you wonder, is that really good? Is that beautiful? Is that true? Or maybe you've seen pastors abuse power and authority and wonder, well, pastors who are supposed to be representatives of God abuse power, then maybe Jesus isn't the great king we say he is. How do we know that this is, this is good? How do, we, how do we know that Jesus is the good king? How do we know that submission to him is freedom? Uh, well, let me jump back into the Heidelberg Catechism for a moment. Right after it says that Jesus is our only comfort in life and death and we belong to him, it goes on to say this, that 
He has, paid, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. Friends, this is why you can trust him. Because Jesus died to set you free from all the powers of the devil. Right? All that autonomy that you got in the garden that unleashed a cosmic curse on us. Jesus freed you from that. Right? The good and faithful king coming into enemy territory to free us, his people. Jesus accomplishes this through his death and through his resurrection. Right? Raining, raining, raiding the strong man's house, hell itself. And raising from the grave victorious with his people with him. This is what Jesus does. He dies to make a way for you and his kingdom. He knew that we couldn't break away from this kingdom of darkness on our own. He knew that the only way for us to break free was from the powers of the devil was through his blood. And that's exactly what he did because he is the good king. The only good one. The only gracious one. The one who forgives when we act against us. And he is the one king that who, when you submit to him, his burden is light. His yoke is easy. He is the only king that when you submit to him, your load is lighter, not heavier. His laws give you life, not burdens. If you've ever driven uh, with a cargo trailer behind you, the worst kind of cargo trailer to pull is an empty one, right? Because there's nothing to keep it uh, going straight when the wind and storms come or every bump in the road, every divot in the road causes it to go all over the road. But when you put the right amount of weight in it, it drives smooth. As if it's not even there. This is like our lives when we submit to Christ. We can easily think that freedom comes from having no outside king holding you down. But true freedom is found in submission to the one true king, Jesus. So the solution to our struggle with authority is in submitting to Jesus. And when we do, one of the beautiful things about the work of Christ is he actually invites us into his work. He shares his authority with us. That's one of the ironies about these, the, the, the Sanhedrin. They're trying to hold on to power and authority. But if they would have just submitted to Jesus, he would have actually shared his authority with them appropriately. He shares his authority with his children. He sends us out into this world as representatives of this hopeful kingdom that is growing on earth as it is in heaven. And we're called to live as citizens of God's heavenly kingdom while we walk this earth. What this means for your life is every part of your life is going to be marked by being a member of this kingdom. Your, your marriage should be marked by these things. Uh, your, your families should be marked by these things. The way you raise your children is marked now by God's kingdom and his rule. The, your, your work and your job is not just working in your job. You're working to make God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You're, you're mitigating the curse every time you do good at your job. The way you work hard, the way you talk about others, or a lot of it's the way we don't talk about others, right? The way we hope in the midst of darkness. These are kingdom principles, kingdom things. We look different because our king is not ourselves, our king is not of the world, but our king is Christ who created all things. And when we learn to trust and submit to him, it's in that moment that we find that, that peace that you've always looked for. And so our call is to submit to him, to trust him, to see that his way is the only way. And this is the thing that as a church and as a people, we're called to continually grow up into. May we be a people who find peace as we submit to our great King Jesus. May we live boldly as citizens of his kingdom, even in the midst of darkness and despair. Pray with me. Merciful God in heaven, we give you thanks 
for your word, for your word that confronts and challenges, but it doesn't just challenge, but it, it's also a balm to our soul, knowing that your love for us is profound, that it is deep, that there is no mountain you wouldn't tear down to rescue your children. Out of your love for us, help us to live out of that love, gratefully submitting to your rule in our lives. May we not fight against it, but may we submit to it with joy, knowing that with you is the fountain of life. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.